Um, as I said, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and uh, here at Open Table, we like to sync up with the lectionary um, during Lent. Uh, if you're not familiar with the lectionary, the Book of Common Prayer, if you're Protestants, the Common Missal, if, you're, if you were a Catholic, is this book that lays out kind of the basic liturgical processes um, for the church. So all the stuff you're used to hearing, like weddings, you know, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today, that all comes from the Book of Common Prayer. It kind of tells um, us how to do certain things. And, um, and that book lays out this uh, um, a group of passages to be read really every single day, um, but definitely to be preached on every week. How many of you guys use a reading plan or some kind of devotional as you kind of study through the through the Bible? Um, you don't have to raise your hand. You're making everybody else feel bad. Stop it. Um, no. Um, uh, yes, the, the Book of Common Prayer would have been the very first one of those that kind of laid out for you what you should read every day. Um, and, uh, and more importantly, what should be preached every Sunday. So it would give the preacher a passage every Sunday to preach. And some of us feel like that's a little constricting. Um, but it, there was some brilliance to it when you think about it. First, if you went to a liturgical church, you'd be able, if you were on vacation or something, you'd be able to go to another church somewhere else and not really miss out on a week of the series because you'd be in the same passage at this church you visit that you would have been at home. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the shallow piece. The more important is the leadership of the church that kind of set up um, the Book of Common Prayer and those who continue to review and revise it today um, set it up to make sure that in the course of a year you were exposed to kind of the full uh, content and, and, and extent of the gospel um, and, and how the Old Testament even feeds into the New Testament story. They recognize that preachers have a tendency to want to focus on particular parts of the Bible and avoid other parts. Um, and they also noticed um, the, the tendency to always try to come up with something new, you know, and, and so they felt like um, if you follow the lectionary, you would be um, kind of forced to give out a well-balanced look at the Scripture every single year. And so... Um, it's not for everyone, but it definitely has some merit. Well, here at OTCC, we kind of do a hybrid. Um, we kind of preach whatever we feel like the Lord wants us to preach through most of the year. And then in Advent and Lent, um, it's fun to, to teach from the lectionary and kind of sync up with all the other liturgical churches who are part of our family as Christians and, and, uh, and talk about the same passages they're talking about. So the passage we're going to talk about today, there are millions of Christians hearing some sermon on this passage today. So it's kind of cool to know that we're teaching and talking about the same thing that such a huge chunk of our family is talking about today. Um, and someday I've thought we, it might be fun to preach through the lectionary for a whole year and just to see what we think about it. But for now, we're going to stick with Advent and Lent. Um, and I normally really enjoy um, the lectionary when we're in it because I get to dive into an assigned passage. I don't have any agenda going in. I just take the passage that I'm given and I study out that pericope of Scripture and, and, and see what it might have to say um, to us. This week was a little different. Um, our passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, and Mark is simply not my favorite book of the Bible. So before we actually get into it, I'm going to take a minute to just totally complain about Mark. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. I don't think I'm allowed to complain about the Bible. I don't know how that works, but they didn't um, teach us that. But uh, first, the lectionary passage this year comes from the Gospels, um, and uh, and for the most part this year we're going to we're going to focus on the Gospel passages of the lectionary, and this almost serves as like a highlight reel um, for Jesus. Many of the huge moments that we talk about in Jesus's life made it on this year's lectionary list, uh, and actually my plan was to was to title this series. 
highlights um, because it, it made me think of sports highlights, you know, where you put all the best parts of the game in, in one little thing, um, only from Jesus' life. But as I was digging into this theme, I realized that most of us live with a, with a highlight reel, like in our pockets every day on our social media feeds. I mean, none of us actually believe that the other, that the person's life we're seeing on Instagram actually looks like they make it look. They're just giving us the highlights, right? You know, and so I decided to title this year's Lent series at Jesus, like it was Jesus's um, Instagram handle. So if Jesus had an Instagram, this year's lectionary passages might be his Instagram worthy moments. Um, you know, like those moments when you have this perfect, hot, gorgeous plate of food. And rather than eating it while it's hot, we, we, we pull our camera out and we take that perfect snapshot and then we crop out the stuff and, and hunt for the appropriate filter. And then we come up with something perfect and pithy to say, like, because that's how I roll or it's what's for dinner, you know, or whatever. And finally you post it so everybody can like and comment on it. And then you eat your food once it's cold. Like it makes perfect sense. It's just so natural. Um, so this year, we're going to be looking at some of those moments um, that might have made Jesus' Instagram feed. Uh, and honestly, the book of Mark is the perfect place to start that kind of a study because Mark is basically an Instagram feed in and of itself. Most scholars believe Mark was the very first gospel account written. They date it somewhere between 50 A.D. and 70 A.D. Um, but the one thing we know for sure is that it was written quite a few years after Jesus' death. Um, and so the story of Jesus and the church had time to grow and spread. Um, and, and, and Mark was written kind of as a work from memory. This is, we have a tendency to, to treat the gospels like there was a reporter following Jesus, writing down everything he did. And that's not the way they were written. These were the people that walked with Jesus. And when they came toward the end of their life, they realized they needed to kind of write down their memories of Jesus and, uh, because they might not be around forever to share them. And so they wrote them down so they could be passed on. And, and most of them were written for a purpose. Um, so these were, these were more um, sermons than like uh, historical documents. They, they piece things together to, to, to explain to us and teach to us the message of Jesus. Most people believe that Mark um, was actually Peter's scribe. And so these are Peter's stories. Um, written uh, toward the end of Peter's life uh, by his scribe, Mark, because Peter would have been a fisherman. And back then you had to really be trained to write. They didn't have paper at Walmart. And so it was really expensive and really um, important. So they didn't just let anybody scribble. You wanted to make sure you had somebody trained to do it. And, uh, and Mark was a scribe. And so they, they believed that Peter kind of dictated Mark wrote. So assuming that's true, this would be the high points of Jesus' life that Peter had been telling for 20 to 40 years um, by the time he got to Mark. And the reason um, I say that Mark's gospel is kind of an Instagram feed is because it is the shortest um, gospel account there is, Matthew and Luke, um, both of which scholars believe had Mark um, in front of them when they wrote their Bible. So they kind of used Mark as an outline, and then they filled in the details that they remembered about each story. Um, but Matthew and Luke use about 25,000 Greek words in their telling. John makes it about 20,000. Um, Mark doesn't get anywhere near 15,000. He's considerably shorter and concise. Um, and the crazy thing is Mark tells pretty much all the same stories as the other two. It's not that they tell more stories. It's that he gives no details whatsoever. Um, and uh, and this is why I don't like the book of Mark, because partially I'm probably jealous because I am not that good at being concise. Um, 
But more importantly, where I am, uh, when I am trying to prepare a story, I like to get into the details. I like to look at it and focus on the details until the story starts to feel real to me. And once it feels real to me, I start to pick it apart and figure out um, how to communicate that. And it is really, really hard to make Mark come alive because he just gives you nothing. Um, anybody know one of those people that when you talk to them, they answer everything with one word answers and, and, uh, and you're like, give me something here, you know, uh, it, yeah, really hard. Mark's one of those people. Quick confession. Like my kids, I'm really bad at quick, concise, like small talk. That is like when I think about hell, I'm not that afraid of fire. My hell is if it's just a never ending small talk like that. I don't if it's an if hell is an eternal, awkward conversation, I am lost because I, I can't stand it. My kids make fun of me because. I've been known to do like full ninja rolls on the ground to avoid bumping into somebody in a store if I haven't seen them for a couple of years. And we're going to have that. Hey, good to see you. You look so good. Oh, my God. We should get together. Like that is the worst. I, I cannot do those at all. So my kids will laugh because I'll turn down and I'll be like, oh, and I'll run and bolt like, man, I almost bumped into that person. That would have been terrible. Yeah, I don't I don't like small talk at all. It's terrible. And Mark feels like the Bible version of an awkward conversation to me. So with that lovely lead in, um, why don't we read today's passage? It reads like this. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John the Baptist, him and, uh, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up from the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly beloved son in whom I Uh, And you bring me great joy. The spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and the angels took care of him. Later, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached the good news. The time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. So here, um, here's what happens. Um, And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure some of you absolutely love this kind of like really concise reporting um, without a bunch of fluff. But um, Jesus tells the baptism story, the entire story of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus' whole run in with Satan uh, and the beginning of Jesus' ministry all in seven verses. Just boom, 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 boom. And, uh, and as you know, I can't introduce myself in seven verses. Um, and so uh, in fact, I went to a counselor one time. And he was like, uh, he started the whole thing. You know, we had 45 minutes or whatever you get. And he was like, so how are you doing? And I was like, oh, wow. How do you answer that question? I mean, I'm a white male in America. So any complaints I do have are obviously trivial compared to the way most of the world has to live. But, um, but then on top of that, and after like 25 minutes, he was like, hey, just for the sake of the fact that you're paying me to do this, I feel like I at least need to get to the second question. Like, I don't feel like I will have earned my time. Yeah, he had to, like, shut me down just because I didn't know how to answer, how are you doing? But um, but Mark certainly did not um, suffer from my affliction because he had no trouble offering just the facts, just the basic story. So as I dove into this passage, I was kind of overwhelmed with the sheer amount of content I was able to pull from seven verses that he crammed into such a tiny little package. I could seriously unpack these uh, this little pericope for weeks and I was tempted to just use this kind of as like a touch point to go to another passage, but that wouldn't be, you know, sticking with the, with the true nature of the lectionary. So I decided we're going to park here and just dig a little bit. 
Um, so did you bring a lunch? Did everybody bring, get the memo to bring a lunch? No, it's, it's a little long, but not that long. Um, so what we're going to do is grab a couple of the big themes that happen here and, uh, and then try to unpack those just a little bit and then maybe look at how that, how this, uh, fits into our series for this year's lectionary journey. So, um, the first thing we need to talk about is Jesus' baptism, um, which is kind of a big deal. It says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. More speculation probably goes into this particular moment in Jesus's life than maybe any other. Um, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Um, many, including myself, um, kind of take it to the, to the ancient Jewish roots of baptism that a lot of us don't know. Um, this is a mikvah, um, which is a, bapt- a Jewish baptismal tank. This goes back um, to pre-Jesus, uh, um, quite a ways um, before Jesus, actually. Uh, today, in most synagogues, the mikvah would look like this. Um, almost every synagogue has a mikvah, a baptismal tank. Um, and although most um, mikvahs today look considerably cleaner, and I'm sure OSHA really appreciates that handrail, um, the, the mikvah is remarkably unchanged in over 2,000 years, almost 3,000 years. Um, and the roots of the mikvah go all the way back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. When Moses built this um, house for God's worship, um, in the middle of it was this giant bathtub. Um, they called it a laver. Um, to atone for sins, the, the priests would go to this altar and they would sacrifice living animals. And if you have ever sacrificed an animal, that's messy work. It's not, it's not clean. And so um, before they would go into kind of the, the holy place and worship God, they would have to bathe. They would have to clean off. And they did that at this big thing called a laver, which was essentially a mikvah. Um, in Jesus's day, the rabbis had extended this to kind of everyone, um, heavily stressing the need for cleanliness, um, not only from germs, but from the idea of ceremonially uh, being ceremonially unclean. Um, so they had rituals where you would wash your hands, even though you knew they were clean because you washed them a minute ago, but you had to do a ceremonial cleansing. In fact, one of Jesus's most profound teachings um, was on a conflict over when you should wash your hands. Um, so this idea of washing away not only germs, but this ceremonial uncleanliness um, was a lo- around a long time before Jesus. And the mikvah was where most of that was done, um, and especially when it became systemic, when you were trying to wash away like a whole season of your life. Like maybe you would uh, notice you've been slipping and you want to repent and you want to make a vow to God and get something really straight between you and God. You'd go to the synagogue and you would bathe in the mikvah to kind of set off this new season of your life. And so when Jesus healed some lepers one day, um, they were 100% clean. The leprosy completely went away. And Jesus still told them, go to the rabbis and be cleansed um, so that you can reenter normal society. That would have happened at the mikvah. They would have gone to the synagogue and the rabbis would have gone through a ceremonial cleansing so that they can officially um, be uh, in the community again. If you were a Gentile, you wanted to convert into Judaism. You did that two ways. First, you became a Jew via circumcision. So not a lot were converting in um, at the time. But um, but after you were circumcised, you would have to cleanse off all the uncleanness from your Gentile life. And you would do that in a mikvah. Um, and so the first century, and they called it baptism, which just means dunking or uh, submerging. And so it was pretty common for Jews. Um, by Jesus' day, it wasn't used that much historically. Um, there's not much reference to it. It's actually used quite a bit earlier than Jesus. But in Jesus' day, it seemed like only the really devout Jews or Pharisees and stuff used the mikvah um, barely often, uh, fairly often. Um, 
but it, it was around long before Jesus. So the idea of people lining up for John to be baptized isn't, I mean, it's weird that that many people were showing up, but that wasn't that new. What was new was that he was doing it out in the Jordan River, and, and that masses of people were suddenly wanting to come and go through this ritual cleansing. Um, so the, the swarms of people seem to be the weird part. And John is saying, we're doing this for the remission of sins. Um, so why does Jesus show up? That's the weird part. And some have said Jesus was um, using the more common Jewish baptism where you would be baptized to end one phase of your life and start a new phase because he does start his ministry immediately after being um, baptized. Um, But I think there's something else that uh, shows up that's more important. It's kind of revealed in the next verse. It says, And Jesus came down or came up out of the water. He saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice of heaven said, you are my dearly beloved son, and you bring me great joy. Now, this is this amazing moment, and it shaped the imagination of theologians for 2,000 years because you have all three members of the Trinity present in the same space and the same time at the same time. So most of the rejection of heretical understandings of the uh, Trinity come from the fact that they don't answer how this verse could be possible, how you could have the Son, the Father, Son, and the Spirit all present in the same space and time, all in the same moment. But I don't want to get into that because we will never get out if we dive into that. Uh, well, uh, what I do want to focus on is the words God uses here, because these are actually prophetically very, very important. And a voice from heaven came saying, you are my dearly loved son. You are my dearly now. To Christians today, this is old hat, right? We talk about this all the time. We talk about Jesus being the son of God. And we assume Jesus here is just declaring himself to be God's son. And that would be revolutionary and scandalous uh, for that day. Well, that's true, but for a totally different reason than we sometimes think. The idea of God's son was not new in Israel. In fact, the reason they didn't like Jesus being considered the son of God was because this job was already taken. The, The idea of Jesus being the son of God was already taken. And, uh, and the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart and he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I command you, let my son go so he can worship me. This theme continues all through the Old Testament. There's several times when Israel is referred to as the son of God. And Jesus comes saying, he is the son of God. And I don't know that any Jew would have had the context to understand that he was actually claiming to be God himself. I mean, Jesus was claiming that, but I don't think the Jews, uh, Jewish leaders would have jumped to that conclusion. What I think they heard when Jesus um, was claiming to take the role of the son of God was that he was claiming to stand for all of Israel. He was claiming, because everybody knew, um, so the people surrounding Jesus would have looked at it like this. Israel is the son of God. Jesus is saying he is the son of God, so Jesus must be Israel. Jesus must be claiming to stand for all Israel. Simple transitive property for you math nuts. Everyone of that day knows that Israel is God's son. And now Jesus is saying that he heard God say, you are my son. The conclusion being Jesus is claiming to stand for all of Israel. Now this sounds like a bunch of theological mumbo jumbo, but let's look back at the fact that Jesus gets baptized when he obviously had no sin. He's sinless, and yet he chooses to get baptized for the remission of sin. If Jesus is claiming to stand as as a representative proxy for all of Israel and really all of humanity, though they wouldn't have known that yet, 
Um, but if Jesus is standing for all, he would have necessarily had to participate in and be an example of every necessary human practice, which included baptism. In fact, there's a, a really good argument, which we covered last year in Lent, that this passage is basically Jesus succeeding in every trial that Israel failed in the Exodus. So once you make the connection that Jesus, that God calls Israel his son, then he calls Jesus his son, it places you in that Exodus story. That verse we read today came from the Exodus story. From there, it's a pretty easy connection to see that Jesus being baptized is very similar to Israel passing through the Red Sea, and that the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove is very similar to the Spirit of God descending on Israel at Mount Sinai. And you're seeing all these connections. And then Jesus spends 40 years or 40 days in the wilderness, and Israel spends 40 years uh, in the wilderness. And so you're starting to see this connection that Jesus is going through a very similar walk as, as Israel did in the Exodus story with the difference that he's succeeding in every area where Israel failed. If you want to go deeper in that, you can actually go to last year's sermon, go to the website, find it. It's the Roadblock series week one. We went into it pretty deeply because um, there's actually way, way more that's super, super cool um, that comes from Matthew's account of uh, Jesus' wilderness journey. But what I love about the idea of Jesus representing all of humanity in this passage, especially here at the beginning of Lent, is, uh, is this next verse. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He comes out among the, uh, or he was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. Now, the thing that I would love to draw our attention to is the source of this movement. Jesus goes into the wilderness where he is lonely and hungry and lacks shelter. Mark points out that he's with wild animals, so he's obviously not safe. And he battles Satan, does all manner of testings. And the whole thing is at the compelling of the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, this word compel is a fun Greek word. I've been getting kind of hung up on the Greek lately, which I usually try not to. But this word compel is the word ekbalo, ekbalo, which means to eject or to cast out or to expel or to send forth. It's actually the exact Greek word used every single time Jesus cast out a demon. This is a, a forceful compelling. This isn't a slight, an easy little suggestion by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit giving Jesus the boot into the wilderness. This is, this is like heavy language. The Holy Spirit, who just came down like a sweet little dove like two verses ago, roughly drives Jesus into this testing period with fasting and, and challenge. And here's why I love that. First, some people have a tendency to um, think that fasting is weird, that, that especially like a Lenten fast is weird, like it's some form of penance or, or, or uh, masochism or self-abuse or something. Um, and that's not the case at all. I believe fasting is a very healthy spiritual discipline. Um, that Jesus practiced and, and the Holy Spirit obviously promoted. Um, and if we follow Jesus in baptism, I, I think we're supposed to follow him in fasting as well. I think it's a, it's a healthy thing to do. But that's really the shallow reason I like this verse. The, the reason I really like it is because um, we have this tendency to, to think that all the comfortable things, the good things, the blessings come from God. And that, and that the hard things, the painful things uh, come from the enemy. And this passage couldn't be farther from that theology. In fact, when you look at Mark's detailed picture of this time in the wilderness, Satan is offering all the good stuff. He's saying he's offering bread because Jesus is hungry and he's offering a good reputation amongst the people and he's offering a kingdom that doesn't include a cross. Satan is offering all the blessings. Jesus is uh, in complete obedience to the Spirit when he endures this terrible time. And 
Obviously, I'm not suggesting everything good is satanic and everything hard is from God. What I'm saying is God knows when we need something good and God knows when we need to struggle. And, and trust, faith, is, is accepting that God knows. Right now, Esther's body is not handling stress very well. It's affecting the way she digests food. We had some studies done this week and found out that her digestion is, is off. Um, and part of it is because of her stress hormones and, and levels, her cortisol. And frankly, it's hard to deal with. It's a, it's a tough time for us. Um, and it would be really easy to blame that on Satan and to feel like it's an attack. Except in learning to deal with this, it's training us to be more patient people. It's training us to, to live a more peaceful lives of less stress. We're learning how to do things better to keep stress levels low. So, so it's hard to say with the, with the good fruit that's coming out of this that this is from Satan. It could be a wilderness time. It could be a time when we're supposed to go through hard things to learn how to do things better. Uh, in Mark, we know for a fact that it was the Holy Spirit that echbalod Jesus out into this desolate place. And if Jesus is representing all of humanity in his baptism, then I would have to assume he's also representing us in this wilderness experience. And if we're supposed to follow his lead in one, we should follow his lead in the other, which leads us to this huge chunk um, of theology that Mark condenses down to just a couple words. And it goes later on after Jesus was arrested, um, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee and he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And this is absolutely packed and we really can't go into much of it. or We would be here all day. I spent most of the day Friday just reading commentary on these couple of verses because there's just so much. For instance, this latter part where Jesus um, talks about the gospel is is mirrored off of what was called a Roman evangel. Um, the term gospel actually did not originate with Christianity, with Jesus. Good news or gospel um, was originally used to spread news about the Roman emperor. The oldest fully intact Roman evangel we have is from 9 BC, nine years before Jesus' birth. And it proclaimed that Caesar Augustus was God. It said, the birthday of the God, because the imperial cult believed that the emperor was a demigod, um, was for the world the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the evangelion, um, which has been proclaimed on his account. So Mark, in his recitation of Jesus's words, uses a form well known to Romans of, of this Roman evangel, this Roman um, news, good news. Um, but the Roman evangel always worked in retrospect because you didn't know if, a, if somebody was actually going to become emperor and thereby become a demigod, you couldn't really say much until they were. And so you always look backward. Jesus comes declaring it forward. He comes saying, I am now here. This is the time right now that the kingdom of God is near and it's going to change everything. So when Jesus declares the gospel, the good news, it's in the present tense with a huge eschatological implication. There's your, there's your seminary word for the day. Um, the, the time promised by God is here, now, right now. This is it. Repent and jump on board is basically what's happening. But there's so much more here. Um, we could spend an entire series talking about the biblical concept of kingdom, which is completely in what Jesus said. We certainly don't have time to do that. But Mark in these two verses is kind of gives us the heart of this passage. This is what he's talking about. Matthew and Luke are four and a half chapters in before they get to this to this line. Mark is like... Seven verses. Like, and so they, they, they really get into the details leading up 
um, to Jesus's ministry. But Mark covers the whole thing in like five verses. Jesus was baptized, spent 40 days in wilderness, and then he started his ministry. That's what he's trying to say. Scholars call this Mark's prelude to Jesus's ministry. Um, in other words, the Baptist and the wilderness story really aren't what he's after. He's just kind of touching on those. The story Mark is trying to tell is this is how Jesus started his ministry. Exactly what transpired when he came on the scene. Um, so if you were to ask Mark, you know, about Jesus's ministry, he'd go, oh, man, Jesus shows up one day. He gets baptized. feels like 40 days of wilderness. And he was off. Like, that's how fast he tells it. Like, man, he gets baptized, goes out of wilderness for a while, comes back and rocks the world. Like, flies through the beginning part. Like, went from a nobody wandering into the Jordan River to a world changer in like 40 days is, is basically what happened. So looking at this passage in the context of this year's Lent series, um, this passage would have to be the beginning. So we've titled this, this sermon, The Beginning. Um, in other words, Jesus' ministry had a clear moment of starting. Um, and I think this has some, some significance to us because beginnings are important things. How many of you guys do the first day of school pictures? Come on. Yeah. You, you just snap the picture. You know, we, we, we love new beginnings. Um, I actually remember being really confused by prayer when I was kind of first became a Christian because everybody was telling me to pray about big decisions. Like you have to really pray about it. Ask God and wait till you hear from God. And my problem, problem was not that I didn't know how to hear from God. It, it wasn't that I, that I, cause I believed in my heart that God knew how to speak to me. And if he wanted to speak to me, he could. I had no problem believing that he was big enough for me to hear him. My problem was discerning which decisions were big enough to pray for. Because I would sit there and I would go, man, the shirt that I picked this morning could totally start a conversation with somebody. And I could use that conversation to like totally lead them to Jesus. How could there be a bigger decision than the shirt that I choose for today? Like I would get all caught up, you know, or, or the, the route, the route that I take to, to work. I could see a, a widow with a flat tire and pull over and help her. And in so doing, do it as unto Christ. And that's a huge decision. How do I know which route to take to work? So I would blow up. And before I knew it, I was completely paralyzed by prayer. Like, do I pray over every decision? Because every single decision could be absolutely. What is happening out there? They're calling me from the coffee shop room because Samuel is dressed for a skit in children's church. And he's acting like a nut. Anyway. Um, so I was completely paralyzed by prayer because I had no way to know which decisions were the big decisions. And, uh, and I've come to the conclusion, um, that better than saying the important stuff, maybe we should pray hard about the new stuff, the new beginnings, those moments where, you know, this could change everything. This could turn my entire life, marriages, new jobs, moving into a new house, uh, planting a church. I totally wish I had prayed before we planted this church. That would have been a really good move. No, <laughs> kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, there are times that we know for a fact that this decision could change everything. And I think those should be bathed in prayer. But there's actually other new beginnings that I think are important that I think we need to look at here. And there are moments that I think we need to learn how to mark um, and, and put something that helps us remember that moment. In the Old Testament, there were festivals that marked kind of national new beginnings. They had these festivals where they were like, we are going to celebrate as a nation when this thing happened, and it changed the course of our nation. And for personal things, there were these things they called altars, where they would build up some kind of marker to say, this is when God did that new thing in my life. Something you wanted to remember. In our story, Jesus obviously had to share his experience. When he's in the wilderness, he's completely alone. Nobody would have had any idea what was going on. Jesus had to have shared this with his closest friends, his disciples. He doesn't even have disciples yet. He chooses them after this event. 
And so for the gospel writers to record this event, Jesus would have had to have talked about it. But this all leaves the question, how do we know when something is meaningful enough to capture, to memorialize as something truly new? And I think this passage um, has something helpful to say about that. When Jesus gets baptized, it reads like this. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John the Baptist, or Jan, John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. So I think every time this happens to us, we should mark that. <laughs> no, I know that sounds, <laughs> it sounds like I'm joking, I know. But even though this event is incredibly personal to Jesus and very singular, I do believe there um, is an element of it that we do experience and maybe more often than we realize and we too often fail to mark it. Look what Jesus experiences here. He saw the heavens splitting apart. And this sounds big and dramatic, and I, I, but I think about what's happening here. Um, we know that the heavens are not actually like this floating place in the clouds where God lives. In fact, Jesus describes it, heaven's location one day this way. He says, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replies, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or hey, it's over there, for the kingdom of God is among you. So that's how Jesus describes where the kingdom is. That's the reality, right? We know that the kingdom of God is present everywhere, every day among us. We know that God is active and moving on earth and always at work orchestrating and, and, uh, and, and forwarding his will. Except it doesn't always feel like that, does it? On Tuesday morning at work when nothing is going right, it can be really hard to recognize the kingdom of God when you're drowning in everyday mundane life. But this moment when Jesus sees the heavens split apart, what is happening is Jesus is for a brief moment seeing beyond the thin veil that is the normal world. And he's catching a glimpse of the fact that there is more. I think what happens here is Jesus comes up from the baptism waters and, and he sees things the way they really are. Not a bizarre vision of something weird and unique, but just for a few seconds, he sees the truth. Which is that the kingdom of God is right there. And this is the true tragedy of human life, that we might actually grow convinced that this is all there is. Jesus sees in, in the river that that's not true. There is more. And this is why I think it's actually so important that Jesus got baptized on behalf of all humans, even though he had no sin to repent of. And why I like the idea of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus the same way the presence of God descends on the Israelites at Mount Sinai in the same way he, de he descended on the new church in the upper room. And why I like the idea that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, just like Israel fasted um, uh, for 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness, because if the Jesus story stands in place of humanity, of the human story, and succeeds in all the areas where we fail, which just happens to be a fundamental theology in, in, in the Christian faith, that he did just that, then I believe with all my heart that this moment where Jesus sees the way things really are is a moment that we're supposed to experience as well. If we follow Jesus in baptism and we follow Jesus in, in fasting, 
then I believe we're supposed to follow Jesus in seeing beyond this thin, meaningless world to the fact that there is more. I believe it is God's desire for us to see right through this world and hear his voice calling down to us, you are my dearly loved child. You bring me great joy. You and I are made to see more. And I think there are times we do. I think there are moments where for some reason God is real. Not just a conviction we hold in our hearts or an idea we're convinced of, but like we can feel his presence so clearly that it's like the heavens are torn open. We can hear God's voice. And I don't pretend like these moments happen every day. I know they don't. But they do happen. And when they do, you have those moments when you just know there's more. And God is so real. And you know you're his beloved child who brings him joy. We have to mark those moments. Because here's the deal. We only have a couple instances where this happens in Jesus' life, where it seems like he sees more. He sees what's behind this world to the real world. And yet he lived every day in this reality. It's not like we walk around every day seeing the heavens torn open, but when we do, it changes us. When you see it, you can't unsee it. I believe, in, I believe with all my heart that Jesus has changed in this moment. From the moment Jesus saw through the world his entire life changes. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and Jesus wins that battle, and he dives headfirst into his ministry. In short, this was a new beginning. These seven verses of Mark indicate a huge life-changing moment. I mean, if, if Jesus were anybody else, imagine he's a carpenter from, from Nazareth and not the almost robotic Jesus character we imagine who just went around doing God's will and fulfilling prophecies, but a real human Jesus, because I, I believe he was. But imagine Jesus is your buddy, and, and he goes to the river to be baptized, which crowds of people were doing anyway. But when Jesus does it, he tells you later that, that the moment he came out of the water was like for just a second he could see how close God was. And you might think he's being a little dramatic and, hey, who's, who am I to judge, you know? That's awesome that you had that experience. Then all of a sudden he changes his entire life. He suddenly wants to tell everybody how close the kingdom is. And he might even say stuff like the time God promised has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. The bottom line is a moment when God allows us to see more should be the beginning of a new life for us. Things are supposed to change. Paul was in between towns moving from helping stone one Christian to arresting more. And, and while he's traveling between, God shows him more. And not only from that moment does he become a Christian who couldn't wait to tell everybody about this Jesus, but he was willing to suffer almost every day of his life for the rest of his life just to get to share Jesus. And obviously we don't all become missionaries and we don't all quit our jobs and we don't all become itinerant rabbis. But the moment God opens your eyes to his kingdom should change us. It should change us. We simply, we simply should not be the same. After that, from then on, the world should look different. So how do we respond to this? First, um, if you know exactly what I'm talking about and you've had these moments, God is real and you just feel it in that moment and you know it with all your heart. 
then you need to tell that story. That is not a private moment between you and God. The people of God need your story. They need your testimony. The, the only reason we know about Jesus' moment is because he told people. So talk about it. Tell people your story of how you knew when God was real. Later in the book of Revelation, God says we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, by telling our story. Second, if you're on the fence about this Jesus thing, and, and, but you feel that nagging that you want to be all in, and the idea of God pulling back the heavens so you can see him sounds like exactly what you need to jump on board, then ask God for that. Beg God for that. It may not look exactly like it did for Jesus, or, or it might, but I promise you, God knows how to reveal himself. Stop trying to figure it all out. Stop trying to ask all the hard questions. And just ask God to show himself to your heart. So look, this is, this is a Lent. Lent is a journey. We're in Lent. We set aside this season every year to do battle with Satan and our own weakness. And, and we face both the darkness and fight the chaos. Lent is not supposed to be easy, but the beautiful part is we know how Lent ends. It ends in resurrection. So, so maybe the way you respond to this, to this message is to take Lent seriously. Set a good fast. Maybe pick something hard enough that you fail a couple times. Remember, this isn't legalism. This isn't something that if you fail, God gets angry at you. This is exercise. This is us flexing our no muscles. This is us setting aside something that's not even bad just to go... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise these no muscles so that if I need to say no someday, I've already worked that out. I already know how to do that. But set a good fast. And whenever you're craving the thing that you're fasting, whenever it's a hunger pain or whatever, remember that you're doing business this season. This isn't just a can I say no. Let that hunger pain, whatever that thing is, let it remind you. Whenever you're like, you reach for that thing, you're like, oh, no, I'm fasting that. Capture that moment and go, God, we're doing business right now. I'm expecting you to reveal yourself to me this season. Use this as a, as a, as a season to ask God to reveal himself to you. Be sincere and have a humble heart and go to God and ask him to reveal himself. Ask him to be real to you. And I believe all my heart that if we would do that by Easter, we would be a changed people. And the final way that I would like to respond to this message is by understanding that when God does reveal himself to your heart, everything changes. Everything changes. That doesn't mean you like wake up the next morning and you're a perfect person. You don't do anything wrong. It just means you can't unsee that. You can't pretend like this world is all there is anymore. Everything in you is different. And you go about your day different knowing that there's more. And, and, it, and it shapes your decisions. It shapes the way you do everything. As you surrender to Christ, Paul put it this way. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. This is a new beginning, and you need to mark that moment. In fact, I'm sure, as you've noticed, I don't usually give altar calls. I tend to believe the, the, the movement towards Jesus is a journey. It's, it's something we... we it's, it's really hard for me to look back and know officially when I started following Jesus. I'm like, I know the day I prayed the first prayer. 
But I was kind of following Jesus before that. And then I've got these other markers along the way where it's like, no, that's when I was all in. Oh, no, that time is when I was totally all in. Like, you know, but when you look back, it's like a journey. Like, I feel like Jesus had my heart in the beginning and he was just walking me toward him. I'm not usually comfortable asking someone to completely make a life-altering decision just because they heard a really compelling 40-minute message. That doesn't mean that I don't think there are dramatic moments when God reveals himself to us and we, and we accept. So I will say this. If you've never made that like all-in decision or you feel that you have but you've never really marked it and, and said, I'm in, I'm in this thing, then I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, I, don't, I do think it's important to recognize those moments as real and life-changing. When you say, hey, something in me has changed, I see more than I used to, and I'm on this path toward Jesus now. So if, you're, if, if, if you feel like that's a decision that you're, you're at and you want to make that decision, then I'm going to hang around toward the front. Come talk to me. Let's talk about that and what that means and what that looks like. I'll stay up here during communion and even after the benediction if you want to talk. I really do believe that God wants to reveal himself to us this Lent season. I feel something different. And I'm excited to see what God has for us as he reveals himself in a powerful way. And I believe he's, he's, he's going to change lives. So as we go to the table today, um, maybe just take a minute and pray and ask yourself if you are ready for this Lent season. Let's go to the table.